What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck that no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. Just, he's sitting right here in front of us, <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're, just, fuck him. we're just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client we'd look after, and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. bed. He's doing it right now, so <laughs> we may as well tell people if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Nice. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. It's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes. In Canada. In Canada. Yes. Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? He's puppy class. Puppy class. Yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara de Groot. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love Barbara. She just loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. Yeah. <laughs> that literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We Thank appreciate you. Thank you, Barbara. You. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the – did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I travelled from – where did you pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally – he it's does it. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. <laughs> Dog Club, South Dog Club Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a there. great facility. Get yes. in, check it out. He does all the, all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. You yeah, know? he's got some cool artwork. Yeah, and it stuff looks good. There. Check yeah. it out for yeah, sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We've got a new one. Who we got? Tailored Canines. We have two. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and away <laughs> we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, check it out. Tailor so they canines. do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. So thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> don't do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just put money in there. That's wonderful. Yes, but we do have to limit how many people we have. And so, get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you, and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser, and that you align with our ethos as well. Of course, that's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's, look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because the trouble has got shit pines <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barbara DeGroot. Amazing sugar mama, love her, from the hot dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Tro- dog clubs, Troppy <laughs> Daniel, <laughs> dog clubs, <laughs> Australia, yeah, and new to the family, tailored canines, yeah, all the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah, mo- do. mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done, well played. Thank you, sirs and madam. Check them out. They support us. Yeah. You should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Here we are again we're after back. jet-setting around the world. Jeez, we're a couple of travellers, aren't we? We are. We're back from New Zealand. Wasn't it wonderful? Man, we had a great time. We should start with telling those guys, amazing job. I mean, we said it to them Terrific. a million times. I told them there, I said, I'm going to tell it to you five times again this afternoon, what a good job you've done. Then I'm going to have 10 beers and tell you a hundred times through the night, which we did. And then... I'll tell you again now that guys and girls did an amazing job, not just putting on the trial, but they did so well at the trial as well. It was truly marvellous. And I agree with you because sometimes you get lost in the moment and they think, oh, you're just saying that because you're here. Mm. It's a true testament to their work for pulling off their very first trial with all the nerves and the fact that the majority of the people involved in pulling the trial off were trialling their dogs as well. Yeah. It's a huge step. We did it back in 2017 and Mm. it's their turn to do it now to have a trial of a game that you've never been to, right? So like, okay, I'm going to train for PSA, but I don't know people in PSA beyond the internet, you know, like I can connect with, and I don't have access to just go to a trial, see what it's like, all that kind of stuff. So you're just watching everything online. You're trying to read the rule book. You're trying to really truly understand. But the felt experience of being on the field, I don't think that translates through the internet. You can watch as many trials as you want, but until you're standing next to someone watching them walk onto the field, like where you're actually there, you can't feel what they're feeling. And so I think it's a huge step. They did an amazing job to prepare themselves and their dogs. What did they get? They had nine presentations on PDC. Yeah. There was a few handlers that were doing two dogs. Yeah. They got eight passes in PDC. Mm -hmm. They had five presentations on the next day for PSA one. There's three people attempted the one the second day. Five. That was two PDCs and three. No, there was five. Two didn't get through from obedience. So then there was. Oh, right. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Because the bite work's the only part I'm involved in. (laughs) That's right. For those of you who aren't aware, like if you've just joined the show recently and you're not sure what PSA is, it's Protection Sports Association started by Jerry Bradshaw in the United States. And there is an amazing network of people now that are connected to it. Pat and I were recently over in Texas Trophy Club for the PSA Nationals. That was my first one. It's probably your third one? Uh, third, fourth. Fourth. And Pat's been luring me over for many years saying you should go. It's amazing. It's like nothing you've ever seen. And he undersold it probably because when I went there, it's like carnival. It's just amazing. There is 
vendors, there's incredible people, there's talented decoys, judges, stewards, administration staff, like everybody who's everybody is at the PSA Nationals. And it was a wonderful event. I really appreciated going over there. They have this amazing dog sport that you and I in 2016 sat Mm -hmm. down and we thought, should we do this? And we did. And we've gone through all the preparation. You did a like a monstrous amount of it. You flew over, did the decoy cert course, nearly blew that, found out that that was, was actually hard. <laughs> I think we did an episode on this like early we when have. we started the podcast about how yeah. we got going in PSA. We've talked about PSA a lot through the course because it's, it's our it's near and dear sport. to us. Yeah. Yeah, it is. The guys from New Zealand, they connected to us and said, we want to hold a trial. Cole Benji started this way back in 2017, I believe. Yeah, something like that. So when when we started going here, Cole came over and certifies a decoy, I think that was 2018 or something yeah. like that, or 2019. No, 2018. Yeah. And he certified as a decoy, uh, but he was in New Zealand at the time, he's Kiwi, and yes. has since moved to Australia. But so that club, he started that club five years ago and yeah. got those guys together. Him, and, Ricky, and Jason, I think, sort yeah. of, were the, the, the three people that really started it. And yep. there's a conglomerate of people involved in making a club work, and there's a lot of people there now. Yeah. But I think they were the three people originally. If they're not Kiwis, correct us. You yeah, know, yeah. Let, let us know what the dates are. But but that's, it's been especially it's been especially difficult for them because like when you consider here in the US dog sports is of a certain size and yeah. then scale that down to one tenth or even less, that's what we have in Australia. Like when you just look at straight population, don't even worry about anything else. We're a tenth of the population of the US. Yes. And then New Zealand basically scale that down again. So to get together, they had nine people showing at their first ever trial. And these are people who have been at it working. Like that's a huge achievement. It's amazing. It's like, it's just one trial. It's just nine people, but to have those crew have stayed together through COVID, through all of the the setbacks and the the hiccups. And we talk about how difficult it is to source dogs of a particular caliber for PSA in Australia. Although that problem is not solved, but definitely getting better in Mm. Australia. Multiply that by a factor of 10, they have the same difficulties in New Zealand. Again, just huge congratulations. The guys did an amazing job. It was fantastic. And, you know, like all things at a PSA trial, they managed to carry what we've been doing really well here at is turning it into a bit of a spectator sport, inviting people, making sure that the, the like larger dog training community is not just present, but feels included in what's happening there. And I think that's what is sort of sets PSA, I think worldwide, but certainly in the way that we've been attempting to do it with it under like our region of Australia, New Zealand. Mm is including as many people as possible as an education type thing. I feel pretty strongly like I think that dog sports need a commentator and it's my life's goal to become one. You've done an amazing job at the commentating. It was terrific. You started it here. We had a small group of people here. You went out and addressed them and told them all about it. Then you sort of lifted your game and improved it even more in Brisbane and then you did an even better job in New Zealand. So Yeah, going forward, I think what dog sports needs, full stop, not just PSA but dog sports in general, to to make the – the whole thing more palatable to the general dog owning public yeah. is commentary. Cause you don't know who's in the audience watching and what their motives are. Yeah. Like there might be somebody who's down there to think I'm going to throw these guys under a bridge because I don't know what I'm looking at. And it just looks like violence to me. Exactly. Whereas when you get out there and you say, okay, well, the reason that you're doing this component of the protection is for this reason. Yeah. And then it, 
adds credibility to what the dogs are going through. But if you come down there watching a dog sport, especially something like that with PSA, and you're not impressed by what you're seeing on the field, you have to really address your motives. But I think it's reasonable for some people when you're watching any dog sport to not be impressed because you don't understand what you're seeing. Of course. But PSA, especially because it's a surprise scenario based game. So no two trials look alike. Yep. And the further you get into the game, the more difficult, the more complicated, the higher the levels the more difference there is per trial. So the problem that we face with PSA, certainly by the time you're in the level two, when you hit surprise scenarios and in the level three, but it exists even in the the PDC in the level one, is that the average person who just turns up, they don't actually know if it was a good showing or a bad showing. Now, of course, there's a dog that carries a presence. You have, you know, especially tight obedience, all those things people can see and go, oh, I see that. That looks good to me. Mm. But- Maybe a dog breaks a stay or goes after a decoy when it's not meant to or doesn't call off or does call off or like all these various things that if you don't really know the game and have read the rules and have studied it, you're just kind of standing there going, oh, the dog did a thing. And you don't know whether it was meant to do that thing. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You don't know. And the judge gives their critique. Seldom is that critique explaining the game and why it's meant Mm. to go that particular way. The critique is just that, yeah, the dog broke the stay or zeroed those points. But for the people watching, they're like, but how come? Like, why does the dog have to stay there at that point? So that's something that I've been doing. And it's just been when it's appropriate. I'm not doing it as it's happening. I certainly don't explain anything while a person's on the field. But if something out of the ordinary happens or something very impressive happens or something remarkable is probably the right word, I remark on it. And I go out in front of everyone and I sort of put on my regional director's hat and I say, hey, in PSA, we do this because of this. And simple stuff like in the level one, this is one of the, the peculiar things. In the level one, we do the figure eights in the muzzle. Okay. Yeah. So people are like, why are you doing that? And I asked Jerry this. I said, why do we do that? And years ago, and he told me, well, originally the figure eights were done not around cones like we do now. They were done around people exactly like in IGP. You have your group that goes onto the field. But that's a logistical nightmare. Anybody that's ever been to an IGP trial, whether it's the BH or anything else, where you have to go do your figure eights around the group, it's a disaster because it has to be the same four people and those four people have to be allocated that job of going out there. And then you're also got this dog, like in a BH, for example, right, which is a temperament test. You're Mm. finding out if the dog has a suitable temperament. You've got this dog healing past people in close proximity that they could potentially bite because you don't know anything about this dog at this point. Yep. So in PSA in the level one, this is prior to there even being a PDC, the figure eights was done around a group, which they got rid of, but turned it into cones because it just didn't add anything having it around a group when it could be easier done around cones because you're checking the way that the dog heals. But it was done in a muzzle to protect the people in the group because we don't know this dog. This is literally the very first thing. We don't know anything about you or your dog. Yeah, this is the turning up. contestant turning up on the day with a dog saying, here I am, I want to play your sport. Yeah, so it's done in the muzzle to keep the group safe. When the Mm. group got faded out, they kept the muzzle because everything in PSA is designed to build on everything else. So by in the level two, it's a 50-50 whether you're going to have muzzle fight in the suit in the level two protection. It's 50-50 whether it's going to be that or the fended attack. And so – we do the healing in the muzzle just as a like, well, in your development of your dog, don't forget you need to be prepping that dog in the muzzle. Let's mm. see that you have done that adequately in your level one before we ask you to put that muzzle on and have the dog use the muzzle in the level two. So everything's designed to build on like that. So just explaining little stuff like that to people in the crowd makes them go, oh, okay, that's why the dog's wearing a muzzle. Because mm. otherwise people are like, 
why is that dog wearing a muzzle? You know, like it doesn't make any sense to them. And then they see the next one come out and they're like, oh, it's meant to be, but like why? I think that's what dog sports needs in general, not just PSA, but PSA I think benefits from it more than any other sport. Hmm. But like, you know, I, I've been to agility trials and same deal, I don't really know what I'm watching, right? Like, because I need someone to say to me, like, this is the course. You know, like a dog might be DQ'd or something like that. Now, I know the rules pretty well now because I've been to enough, but like a lot of people don't know that. And to create that accessibility to it, to not feel like you're othered, I think that's what's important because we're trying to build all dog sports. We're trying to convince us and many, many others in the dog community are trying to convince people to still do things with their dog, right? <laughs> like actually get a dog for a purpose, train it and develop a relationship with the dog where you both participate in a thing and therefore you both have to act as a team mm. and that will bring your relationship closer together than you could possibly imagine than any other thing you could possibly imagine. Just having to work on something together and considering success and failure together, that's what's going to give you the best bond possible with your dog. So by doing that, we want more more and more people to participate in dog sports. But I think what happens in dog sports, again, not just PSA, all of them, is that there's an othering between people who are in it and people who are not. What we really should be doing is for those of us that are in it, addressing everybody who had the courage, the wherewithal and the time to turn up to a trial and go, hey, glad you're here. This is what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm. And Exactly as you say, like maybe we're inviting people who are interested in, but maybe more likely and more importantly, we're stopping people who are there from drawing an incorrect or erroneous opinion on what they're seeing. And so we say, no, no, that's happening because of this. That's a test that the dog did well at, or that's a test that the dog failed at. Whatever it is, we explain it to people and they walk away going, oh, this is a highly professional, very well thought out organized event that is being run to test the training and the genetics of these dogs. And I support this. Maybe people say what always happens at every trial is there's a, like a ground surge of people like, where do I get one of these dogs? Yeah. <laughs> like people want to get into it. And they're the people that come and talk to us immediately. And are, you're know, asking, how do I get into this? Where do I get a dog? How do I join this club? But more importantly, perhaps are the people that walk away going like, oh, that was cool. They'll never come and say anything to us, but they'll just think that was rad. I will go and watch this again. I support that this is happening. I've seen that before. I've seen it when people have turned up with a dog on the field who was one of those people that you think, what is their motive? Why did they turn up? And then next couple of years, you see them with a working style dog and think, oh, cool. They got Perfect. bitten by the bug. At the same time, it's the same principle when I hear and see people that are poo-pooing training techniques and tools and so forth and finally go along and mentor or go and see somebody or visit a seminar or whatever they're doing. And you'll read on the forum that they'll say, remember me, the stick in the mud who was saying, I didn't like this and I didn't like that about this training methodology. Well, I actually went along and I educated myself and I found that I couldn't fight against it anymore because now I'm immersed amongst it and I can see how it works. Mm. I've utilized it. I've seen the progression it's made with my dogs and therefore I'm converted. It's not about trying to make people say you have to come across and you have to do what we're doing and what we're saying. What it is is saying that what we're doing is we're a bunch of reasonable people and we're doing good things with dogs. Why don't you have a look for yourself and yeah. why not participate and see what you actually think? While you're talking about the aspect of explaining things well, one of the things that I did enjoy the very first time I watched a judging session happen with the dogs is the judges actually explain to you how many points you lost mm -hmm. and how many it was out of. Let's say, for example, there's a healing pattern and it's worth 20 points. Mm -hmm. You might 
tell the person in the level one, you're actually competing for a title now. The dog was checking out all the way down the field. So as you point out to them at the start in the original conversation, if that happens, you've lost four points off the bat. Mm. The dog's not checked in, so you've lost a good fraction of your points already. And there was one of the dogs there that was attempting a level one. It was looking at the ground, sniffing things along and checking out the decoy and so forth. So unfortunately, that was a large part of points. Like every time that happened, it was half a point here, half a point there. And I feel that it's important to let the person know, even though you know that they know that their dog didn't perform well and it wasn't a great showing, it's important for them to know what you saw in addition to already their trial nerves on the field because Mm. they're not paying a lot of attention to that. What they're doing is they're walking along, their butt's clenched tight, their jaw is clenched and they're barely breathing as they're walking along because they're not experienced trial people. Some of these people, it's the first time they've ever stepped on the field. They're not sure how to feel about it and their brain is basically saying lock up, surge with adrenaline. The dog is not experienced with all these different adrenal glands pumping fluids out cortisol surging through your body, like all of these different smells coming out of you and the dog's going, oh, I've never witnessed this experience from you before. Like all these brand new smells and these this experience that we're doing on the field together, I have no connection with it. So it is nice when you're telling the story and you tell them what's potentially going to happen and at the end of it, I confirm it by saying, here is the amount of points, here is what you lost. Because I've been to other trials and I'm not saying this happens at every trial because there might be people in IGP and say, well, I do that. And people at Mondian saying, well, I do that. But I've been to trials before where they don't tell you how many points it is. Mm. They'll just say the dog was doing this and there's a couple of points here and the dog was doing that. So I took a couple of points and, you know, the dog didn't do so well here. So there were some points that I had to take off from there. But you don't know how many mm. and what out of. Whereas in PSA, it's all explained to you. Like yeah. you actually let them know there was five points to lose here. You lost two of them. You've got three. And you do a little bit of a validation and a story of what the picture of the dog was. Every single competitor that didn't do well was disappointed with their outcome, but they did come over and say, hey, man, thanks. That was fair judging and I appreciate it. I know what I did wrong. I know what I need to work on. For me, that's great. That's Mm. validation as me as a judge and also great for them as a competitor because they know what the picture was. And if you listen to that episode that Jerry did on controlled aggression where he talked about preparation for PSA 1 in the Nationals, he really outlined all of what his thoughts is, is the perfect presentation. And what made a big difference from hearing that and then going onto the field this time and being involved in the judging was I was able to picture what Jerry was saying because Jerry said, you have to imagine in this level the perfect scenario. How should it look if the dog was absolutely perfect? And then it has to be decided on there. It's not designed to make sure a dog can never get top marks because there were a few dogs there that got top marks in a few exercises. Like I looked at him and said, that was impeccable. Some of that exercise was exactly what we're after, head up, marching, not making contact, you know, beautiful healing routines where I just thought that was incredible. Nice straight turns. The dog was moving fluidly with the body, no bumping, no contact with the handler. That's the image that you want to see. And then you can say, well, that is it. Like everybody on the field and watching the program gets to say, yeah, that's what I understand now is the judge's measure of what should perfect healing program look like or how do you score the most amount of points in that exercise. So it was great to see. It was great to be a part of. I really appreciate it as you 
put out at the start, how with the little influence that they've had, a little island of people that have come together from the South Island and the North Island, travelled hours to be there. Some people have had to fly over. Some people have had to drive for hours at a time to get there each time they come down to training. And I actually wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that there was only one club. I thought there was a couple of pockets of people that were prepping and training together. I didn't realise that Apex was the only club in Hamilton Mm -hmm. that were doing it. Great little ground. The ground was perfect. It was wonderful. It was a really good experience from those guys overall. So congratulations, Apex, and can't wait to see what you're doing in the future now that you've got all those PDCs. The only reason one of the dogs didn't pass its PDC to get nine out of nine is because it just wouldn't out on the bite. Yeah. Which is a good problem, but still a problem. Yeah. I'd rather have no out than no in. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. It's one of Yen's dogs. Yeah. Yennefer and Vangderberg, I'm calling her now. Um, <laughs> it's one of Yen's dogs. It's a terrific dog. It's got plenty of clout. This dog is legit. He wants to work and he's there, but there's just a couple of control mechanisms that need to be put in place to get him to understand how to play the game better. But he's on his way and, mm. you know, he's a monster and he's going to perform really well once Yen and her team get that all under control. He's going to be... Yeah, a, next trial they'll have no problem. He's going to be a great dog. Oh, dear. It was a good time. It was a good time. I enjoyed it. I'm glad we did it. I love the hospitality and the warmth that the Kiwi showed to us. Off the bat, it was just a very friendly, homely environment to go into. I've never met... Some of those people before, you know, their faces and names off social media and to meet them and to hang out with them and spend four days with them and to have the privilege of being a judge at their first showing and decoying and everything. It was great. It was Mm. wonderful. I know we're not the PSA podcast and we get feedback that, oh, you know, like. No, this is dog training. Yeah. This is the dog community widening our expanse and people coming together from different countries, yeah. supporting each other and showing each other love and affection for wanting to do great stuff with their dogs. Yeah, I agree. And what's happened with PSA in Australia in the last 12 months has been quite remarkable, to be honest. We've been doing these monthly training days. That's been focused on developing decoys. The last one is coming up in a couple of weeks. And then next year, we're continuing the training days. It's all going to be happening, but we're going to change the format because we've trained these decoys now. Like we've got a bunch of guys who are good and we need to now start working on dogs and handlers. Because like we have developed a plan, myself and others have really sat down and thought this through and be like, okay, like what do we need? How do we develop this infrastructure? And there's a lot of different things, a lot of people involved behind the scenes working on this kind of stuff. But we identified quite accurately that in order for there to be clubs, you need people that can catch dogs safely. You, well, like, that's good because that's really the topic of our podcast yeah. is how to be safe at your training practices, whatever you're doing, because you highlighted an issue before where people say you're focusing heavily on PSA, but we're supportive of you doing IGP. We're supportive of you doing Mondio Ring or any of the Anything ring sports, cool KPV, agility, fly ball, detection work, whatever it is, you nailed it. Whatever cool thing you're doing with your dog. That's what we're all in it about. Like this is the best thing. Like really having a satiated relationship with your dog where you and the dog are living your best lives together. Yeah. But what I wanted to say was that in Australia we are growing and it's happening worldwide, but in Australia PSA is growing at at a rapid rate. And it maybe doesn't look like that from the number of trials, but what we've been doing is putting in the infrastructure to allow for that to happen easier and more trials to happen in the future. So next year we're looking at at least three trials just in Australia 
and we continue with these monthly training days. We're looking to get a bunch more people certified as decoys so that it's not just me, Cole, Cheeseman and Jazz actually doing these things. It's, it's more people being able to be involved, allows us to actually hit the field and, and actually compete rather than just having to be decoying on the field. So it's all coming together, which has been fantastic. For me, that's a huge load off, you know, like I've been banging my head against the wall trying to get this going for seven years and COVID didn't help. We had a lot of momentum. Things were going really well in 2019. And then that all got sort of ground to a halt. PSA reduced to nothing but us training once a week, you mm. know, or not even that when we couldn't even, you know, six months of lockdown, we couldn't even get together or anything like that. So it circled the drain in Australia for sure. Both our dogs aged out. Exactly. But yeah, we've been able to bring in more them. people. It's all happening and I feel really good about it. I'm super excited. We're, we're working out more ways to make it more accessible next year for more people, looking at things like a virtual PSA club whereby people who are in remote areas and don't have people to train with, I don't know what the frequency is. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it'll be an opportunity to ask questions and stuff like that. Like, you know, just get together with a pseudo training director or a pseudo group of people online that will you know, work through problems with you and, and help the, you know, discuss your trajectory or if you've got rules, questions and stuff like that, just a constant contact point of, mm. that will go forward for people who don't have access to a club or for clubs that are new and haven't, haven't got the experience yet. So we're doing all these things to really try and get it going. And it is. So I feel really, really good about it. I'm excited. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, even Janet has organized a virtual catch up for me with all the judges in America. So Perfect. in mid-December, Clay, Joe, Ben, everyone, Jerry, the lot of them, all of them are coming online. We're all going to talk all things judging. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was over at Nationals, I raised the idea and Janet said, yeah, look, we've been mean to get it going. And they've probably done it with themselves in the past, but yeah. now I'm here and I'm remote. I want access to them. I want, yeah. I'm hungry for more information now because I need to learn. I need to know how to do my job better. So when I do judge people, there's a reduction in any mistakes I make or errors that happen along the way. I can advance my career in it and help others along with theirs once that comes up and there's a bunch of stuff mm. and it's good for everybody. Like you said, you guys are doing it with the decoying side. That's why I wanted to talk about this with the safety side of it because when we were at nationals, when people were talking about decoys, they were talking about how good these decoys were at not fucking the dogs up. Yeah. And that was one of the things where I was talking to people as I was walking along and I was meeting people and they were talking about their training practices and where they trained. Cause I just went from tent to tent to tent and said, I'm Glenn, you know, I'm over from Australia and some people knew who I was from the podcast and some people it was our very first time. And, you know, I said, who are you? Which club do you train with? Who are your decoys and stuff like that? And we just got chatting. And even at the banquet nights, I was sitting having beers with Lindsay and Chris and all those cool people. We were all talking about the importance of good decoys and how much they bring to the table when they don't jam dogs up and when they are catching dogs safely, you know, and they're not looking to do those big, massive Instagram flexes where it's just all about clout and none about their safety of their dog and crippling their dog or, you know, like causing them to miss the next couple of trials because they've landed on top of their dog and smashed their dog. And when I saw you at the trial in New Zealand, when you caught Gabby's dog at the end and he tracked the bag and he misaligned and he, instead of hitting you on the left cuff, he smashed you in the chest and bowled you over. And he's a hell of a dog. He's a very impressive, magnificent, powerful dog. And he pounded you and you went to spin and it got your, your foot got tangled up and it dropped yeah, you on the ground. And it, what happened was he's a big, fast dog. He's very big. And he's <laughs> and he's fast. powerful. 
Yeah. And so the level one courage test for people who don't know is the decoy and the dog sprinting at each other. Yeah. It's the, a collision. Yeah, it's a controlled the, collision. The way it works as a decoy, like your intent is to like, you're putting frontal pressure on the dog with intent to try and run the dog back to the car. It's a courage test. You're testing yeah. the courage of the dog. But there comes a moment where you realize this isn't going to happen. Like this dog's <laughs> the about dog's to bite committed. me. Yep. So there's this period of cooperation where the dog targets, wherever the dog targets, they're allowed to target anywhere, but mostly in PSA legs would and, teach the left arm or the, or the left leg or the left arm. Yep. And so it's a left arm dog. I'd already caught him in the handler attack and it was beautiful. Like he hit me square and true and everything was fine. Uh, he's a heavy, difficult dog to drive, but you know, so that's, that's the point. Mm. And so there's this moment where you're running out the dog, you realize this dog's going to bite me. That's how it's meant to go. Perfect. And then you have this moment of cooperation where you go light in the body, the dog hits you on the side, you disperse as much of that energy yeah. as possible. You roll with the dog. It's like yeah. jiu-jitsu where you're rolling with your opponent yeah. rather than trying to crush them or bend them yeah, up. Yeah, so, you know, you typically just kind of go light on your feet and let yeah. the dog do the work. It spins you around and then you then you go back to this adversarial part where you're back into the drive and now you're like putting pressure on the dog through the drive and that's the, another test of courage of the dog. Part of PSA involves what we call the bag toss, which is a distraction. It's worth 10 points. And what we do is we throw a bag across the front of the dog. What's interesting, and like I had never experienced this until we had a dog that chased it one time. You remember that? So like yep. I just to think a long time ago when I first saw PSA, I was like, oh, what the fuck is the point of this? Like what dog is going to chase a bag when the decoy has thrown it? Like this is outrageous to me, right? Like because – I think, you know, my imprinting in a lot of the bite work that I did, it was all pretty like heavily, pretty aggressive dogs. Like it was army stuff, right? And so these are dogs that really intend to hurt the decoy, not just they're not playing a game. This is not their – like I, I was imprinted not in sport dogs, but even that's not a – a reasonable thing to say. Lots of it turns out lots of dogs will have an issue with the bag. Well, if they if think the decoy prepped. looks scary, but the bag doesn't, that's that's far less of a challenge. That's one thing. That's but also, it's just prey. It's, it's just prey. it's just a prey item that moves across. It's just yep, something it's that tracks thing. across in front of them and mm. distracts them. That's the idea. That the the points are awarded as a distraction. It's ten points. And with this dog coming down, his name's Falco. He just he was a huge dog. He's come fast. And to be honest, like I've watched the video a million times. He only took a half step towards that bag. It was only um, like. Yeah, he just did a minor veer. Less than a fraction of a section of a yeah. second that he actually looked at it. But it was enough because I'm running at him <laughs> and that he's running at me that he took like a half step to his left, which yeah. my right. And then he was like, what am I doing? I'm not, I'm not biting that bag. I'm biting that guy. Yeah, he just went, nope. Yeah. But then by at that point, he's to my right side yeah, he was and he target. was right on top, on top mm -hmm. of me. So by the time he hit and I was, to be honest, my, my brain was going a million miles a second. Cause I was like, Oh, how am I going to deal with this? Like I, I, I thought he was going to go with the bag. Cause you know, I'm looking him in the eyes and usually, you know, for people who have never decoyed before, and I think most decoys would attest to this, is that when a dog's running at you, it's telling you most of the way down where it intends to bite. Yep. It, now, a ring dog, if you're a French ring person, like that's probably different. The dog's reading you and they train the dog. You can see the eyes. The eyes are a but very yeah, big tell. For us who are not going to escape the dog, we're not going to try and escape the dog. We're going to run true at the dog and the dog then tells you pretty quickly, this is where I intend to bite you. You can read that in their intent. Mm. And so he's coming down. I'd worked the dog the day before. I'd worked the dog just seconds earlier because I did the handler attack as well. 
was like, oh, this is all going to go great. To be honest, <laughs> I was actually thinking to myself, this is going to be great. <laughs> I was like, this dog, this is going to be this a, is gonna be a this, show. This is going to be fantastic. It was a show. It yeah. was a great show. It was a show for me. <laughs> Mate, I actually thought to myself as he took off, I thought, this is going to be fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to catch this dog so clean. I'm going to be able to catch and drive him perfectly. We're both going to look wonderful here. This yep. is going to be great for everybody. No. I got blasted into outer space. It did look great. I, I loved it. I was enjoying it. I'm standing right next to you, like stopping the steward from stopping what was going on. Because yeah. I, I know from past experiences that you've got to allow the decoy to get up on their own. Yeah, well, they're required you know, to in the sport. Th- they that's have right. To. During the training, that is part of the skill base where you're deliberately put on the ground, have a dog on top of you, safe dog, and the dog is in the cuff and you're told, get up. You've got to stand to your feet and you've got to then drive this dog. I've been at enough decoy camps where I've watched that happening and I think it's absolutely fantastic. Mate, you did a great job. Yeah. I mean, for a guy that's got a a very bad back and you got wailed by this dog, he hit you off kilter. You did the best you can with the catch you took. And, I mean, you took the heat for the dog. You absorbed most of that, safely caught him to the best of your capability and took it like a champ. And, you know, dropped you. You got up and then went to drive him and tangled up and went over again. The only thing I'm disappointed in myself you tried to go too fast. Well, I got up and then I didn't reorientate myself. Yeah, you're just concentrating on getting the show going and driving the dog. Yeah, but it happens all very quickly. But the dog bit me on the right side, flipped me over. I flipped over the dog. He landed on his feet. I'm on my back because he was hit me pretty high in the shoulder. And I wasn't worried about like that. This is a very powerful, very stable dog. So I wasn't worried that he was going to transition, but I still decided like I'm going to put my left arm between him and my face just so that if he re-grips – because he wasn't quite on my arm. So if he re-grips, then he's not going to end up re-gripping more of my chest and potentially get like a a, a, a tooth over my suit. Yep. So I put my arm across there so that if he re-gripped, he would re-grip in partially into my arm and sort of staple my arm to my own chest. But he didn't. He, he went in perfectly. Yeah. But as I got up, I orientated myself, did all the things that I teach people to do, get to one knee, straighten a leg so that you can stand up, do a pistol squat, away you go. But then I didn't reorientate myself when I stood up. And because now he's on my right side, not my left like I'm used to, I just went into the drive. But he's, the weight's all totally wrong, so I just fell straight back over. <laughs> <laughs> so what could have been like really cool turned out to be like, oh, Pat's fallen again. But it was all fine, got up, managed to get a couple no, of steps good. of drive, and then it was over. But that's part of the safety aspect. And you showed that on your Instagram account, like you actually showed a training video of you doing it at Cole's place. You had that on the bottom and the actual event on the top. So it was almost like you played that out so you could actually make that go. But the importance of that is decoys have to know that that is potentially going to happen at a trial. It's happened at a lot of trials where I've been at where decoys have been bitten badly, not badly as in, you know, like taking a bad bite, but just in the wrong area. The bite didn't go to plan. It's thrown everything off kilter. Like the game plan has to then be changed because you're in the wrong position. So you have to think on your feet and you have to think, well, this is potentially going to happen. And if it does, as decoys, what do we do about it? How do I make sure the dog is safe? How do I make sure I'm safe? Most importantly, you know, like when we talk about- I would say the opposite. One of the things like, you know, why people talk about the decoys did a good job of catching the dog safely It's an uncomfortable conversation. I've had it with plenty of the guys that we're training now is that it's better you get hurt than the dog. It is. And I agree with that. And it sounds like I'm going to contradict myself, but you've always got to play the game of self-rescue. 
Like you've still got to make sure that you're okay and you're not going to make the situation worse yeah, yeah. by doing something silly that then does have the dog panic and transfer. Sure, because sure. Because a lot of times with the transfer, like when you alluded to it before, what happens is the dog doesn't deliberately go for something vulnerable. What happens is the dog is missing what it wanted in its mouth and thinking, oh, my God, it's not there. Yeah. I need to recontact with the decoy. And in those sort of situations, whatever's in front of the dog, the dog will think, well, that'll do. I'm just going to drive down on that. And if it's skin, it's skin. And it's not the dog thinking, I want to bite you somewhere vulnerable and do something terrible to you. It's just thinking, I'm supposed to be biting. I'm not doing my job. I need to do my job. I need to get back down on it. And that's where like a decoy still needs to be of sound mind and body and still in self-rescue mode where they know that they need to be in a in a better position to make sure that when that bite happens, there's no risk to them. And again, it's not going to cause mayhem to the dog. And that's why I love that conversation when I was having at Nationals, when people were making a very poignant point of saying, I like this decoy or these decoys or these group of decoys or this decoy from this state or this country because they put my dog's welfare right up the top of the list. You know, like they're not doing it to helicopter my dogs around. They're not doing it to run at my dog and have my dog bounce off them and collapse its lung or something like that because it's got a knee in the chest and all those sort of silly things where that comes from poorly trained decoys who haven't been in the game all that long and have created an echo chamber amongst themselves where they're thinking what I need to do here is when this dog comes in is throw this dog up in the air and then have it land on its back Mm. when it comes down because, A, I don't know how to do the catch, I don't know how to absorb energy, and then I don't know how to put the dog back safely on the ground. Yeah, And that is an appreciation because that comes from me too with my own dogs when I'm working my dog with you or other people is I need to know I'm not with a decoy who's trying to make a name for himself by throwing my dog through the air and then smashing him on the ground, especially as our dogs start to wage. Like we do these dog sports because we love our dogs. And this is the premises of the safety aspect and the reason why this is such an important thing and a forefront on people's minds in decoy safety is that this decoy cares about your dog. Yeah. And and as you said before, they will put themselves in harm's way before they hurt your dog because then they realize I can come back from this, whereas if I put the dog down hard on its leg, there's a very strong chance I could break the leg, rip a muscle, and that could be the end of the dog's entire sporting career. Mm -hmm. Of course, we don't want to see decoys ending their decoy career or worse, ending their professional career and not being able to support themselves by having a bad accident. But these are contact sports. Contact sports have big risks. That's right. But I think there's two conversations to have around that. Yes, there's a fair few. The first is... You know, and this relates to any dog sport. Yeah. I think that as a handler, the first decision around safety and the well-being of your dog is for you, right? So like, should you even be there? Yeah. I've run a dog before. I've run a few and I take no pleasure in it. That's the test, right? And especially when it's something fairly linear, right? Yeah. So I think that one of the things that I think is interesting, I spoke about this quite a bit at the um, Zoom session I did for the Crown PSA guys is that I think sometimes in the more complex sports like PSA, but it happens in Mondio as well, is you get dogs that will not engage, not bite, not because of nerves or anything like that, but because their RAM goes full. Like I think that when a dog gets overloaded, it's like the spinning beach ball on your computer. You know, like when you do try and do too many things, try and open too many programs, click too many things, it just 
freezes and decides, well, I can't do anything. And I think the same happens with dogs quite a bit as well. Like when you, you're asking for a, a lot of complex behaviors, it's a scenario where the dog is going to figure out what is it exactly that you want here. Maybe there is a level of interpretation, like in a defensive handler type scenario where the dog has to make a decision, like the dog has to see. And as a handler, we don't tell the dog to bite. The dog has to interpret the scenario and go, oh, this is me biting. But he's also holding it down. He's also dealing with the conflict of another decoy that's trying to draw him in. So it doesn't take long for a dog to think about too many things before it goes, no, it's too hard. I'm not thinking about anything and chooses nothing over action. It is running the dog. It is a failure, but it's not running the dog because of nerve. It's running the dog because you just kind of overloaded the dog. So that's Mm. separate from what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a dog that probably shouldn't be there, right? Of a dog that perhaps doesn't have the nerve strength or has not been adequately prepared Now, when there's an issue there, that's on the handler side because as a decoy, I have to present the test, right? Now, like for us, you know, I'm a certified PSA decoy, but I'm not certified in any other sports, but I enjoy them. I watch them. I help people prep for them. The thing with, they all have a level of certification and what is constant throughout all the dog sports is that the decoy, you present the test. It's not up to you to interpret the dog's capability. Like you present the test. You've just got to do a fixed pattern of the test. You are the test. And so you don't get to dial it down, dial it up per dog and what it's ready for because this is the test. We're not modulating anything here. There's a standard and the standard must be run. Yeah. So there's a level of danger that goes into that as a handler. If you've not adequately prepared the dog, then you're putting that dog in front of somebody who's going to put pressure on it. Now, it's typically not physically dangerous, but mentally it could be for sure if you have not adequately prepared the dog, right? So I think that's the first conversation to have about safety is like actually what I say to people and it's the conversation that I've had plenty of times when people get a PDC with a, a fairly new dog and they're like, well, because trials are so infrequently here, I'm going to have a crack at the one. Do you think I should? And my advice to people usually is if you're a touch and go pass or fail over the control, then have a go for sure. But you know, why not? The worst that can happen is that you fail. But if you're touch and go over trialing because you're not think the dog is ready for that level of pressure, then definitely don't Mm. like definitely don't because a failure at that point can be catastrophic to the dog. Like that can have a strong effect on the dog in the remainder of its life. If it's because your dog's going to break the stay, fine, have a crack, like roll the dice, see if he holds the stay. But if it's because he's perhaps going to come out of the grip or he's going to have trouble with like that level of pressure, then definitely don't do it. Right. Like that's my assessment on that. But once as a handler, we've ticked the box and decided, yeah, I'm going into this. Now the safety is really totally on the decoy. As a handler, we say, I've adequately prepared the dog. The safety is now completely on the decoy. It's what I encourage people to do. It's what I teach people to do. And I try and do myself Mm. is that if someone's getting hurt, it's got to be you and not the dog. As much as I hate to fucking bring it back around, the truth is the reason why that is, it's the consent piece is that you know the potential repercussions. Yeah, you went into this willingly. Yeah, when you put on that bite suit, you can look up, you can see people get blasted. You can watch that video of me getting spun into outer space. You can watch other people. There's plenty of videos of decoys getting their limbs broken. You can see people getting missed bites and getting bitten for real. You talked about Siggins having his ribs crushed by Jerry's dog. Yeah, by Rocky, yeah. So like there's all these potential things that can go wrong Mm. and the information about that's available and you can digest that and you can go, well, I choose to anyway. And that's fine. Like, yes. but that's your choice. Yeah. But the dog doesn't understand any of that shit. And if the dog's been developed correctly, 
he doesn't believe anything can go wrong because yep. that's what that's what will make for a, a beautiful fast entry. If a dog's never been jammed, he doesn't know that he could be jammed. Yeah. Right? If he's never been in a position where he feels that uncomfortable that he thinks of quitting because he's been so carefully prepared along the way that that doesn't occur to him, then it's not in his role. It's not a consideration while he's entering, and so yep. therefore he doesn't consent to being hurt because he's just doing something cool that he has been convinced is the cool thing to do, and then he's put in a position to do it. Whereas for a decoy, you chose to do that shit. You put yourself out there. So that's why I think when we always refer to like when we say, oh, they were good, safe catches is because you did it in a way where the dog got to demonstrate its capability. You tested the nerve, the courage, the strength of the dog and all those things, but you did in a way that there's no risk of injuring the dog. Yeah, And that's the art of it. And that's what I think is behoves you to understand. And that's one of the things that I've sort of been drilling into the guys that I've been training. That's been a bit of a sort of like uh, an uncomfortable thing for me training those guys over the years. Cause like as a decoy, I'm adequate. My skill sets in dogs as a decoy is not my best, right? Like I'm, I'm certainly adequate. I can develop a dog sufficiently. I'm, I'm good at it and I can decoy at a trial. Like, you know, I was deemed competent at my certification. I'm good. I'm fine. But it's not like I don't hang my hat on being that. You know what I mean? I don't have that in my bio, like decoy pat. You know, it's not my thing that I want to be. The truth be told, I begrudgingly put on my suit every time that I do. The moment that I am redundant, like as soon as we have access to someone who's better than me, I'm done. Like Mm. I'm only doing this because I'm the one that can. It's been tricky for me teaching people over the year because it's not something that I ever thought that I would be in a position to teach, but I'm the person that's willing to do it. So that's why it's happening. But what I've been explaining to the guys is like, you cannot injure these fucking dogs. That is on you. We have to crawl, walk, run in the way that we do all this kind of stuff. If I say to you, we're going to do a full courage test, we're going to send a dog full steam and you don't feel like you're capable of doing that. If you have any hesitation, just say, no, I'm not ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dial it back. Let's do a short send. Give me an opportunity. Even let's do walk on bites, like anything, whatever it takes for you to get to that point, because the dog's just doing cool dog stuff. He's just, he's just, you know, he's just throwing caution to the wind and away he goes, especially you get dogs like mine that don't really have really any capacity for self-preservation. Like it doesn't occur to him that he should preserve himself in any way, shape or form. That's not in his genetics. It's not in his makeup. He doesn't think about himself when he's in drive. He's like, he can't, he doesn't give a fuck about anything. Mm. He only wants what he wants, right? Doesn't think about the cost to him along the way. He worries about that after he's gotten it. And so when you're working those kinds of dogs, which is most of the good ones, that's, that's how they're meant to be. It's your job to think, well, I have to keep you safe because you ain't going to keep yourself safe. And I have chosen to be here. You have not chosen to be here. Mother nature tells you that you should be here. And your handler has cultivated this and built this over the course of your life, turned you into what this is, but you still didn't make any choices about this. And so that's why it behoves us to present such safety. And that's why I think, you know, especially as we, you know, on the trajectory for an inevitable battle about this stuff in in our state anyway, when certainly there's people who don't want bite sports to exist and all that kind of stuff. That's why I put so much weight into this when I'm explaining it, because it's true. When we look at the Melbourne Cup, for people who are listening who don't know, the Melbourne Cup is the equivalent to like the Kentucky Derby here in Australia. It's the biggest horse race of the year, stops the whole nation, everybody watches it. But every year, man, there's more and more protests about that because inevitably horses get hurt in horse racing. That happens. And it's the same conversation, to be honest. It's a very similar thing. That horse doesn't consent to, he doesn't know that can happen to him. And that's the argument of all of the animal rights groups in this is that the horse is just being a horse. He's just doing horse shit. 
And it's us that are pushing them to the limits and putting them into dangerous positions. And the Melbourne Cup, which is, I mean, it's not going to get banned because the fucking financial situation around that is astronomical, right? Yeah. Like that, that's and the why people it, involved in it. It's all the money around yeah. being involved. It's not going to get banned, but it certainly draws a lot of attention to itself because we've had multiple in the last few the years. The curtains are going up and there's a horse that's getting shot. Yeah. Mm. It almost, I don't follow it that closely, but it's been quite but a bit recently. But the protesters do. Yeah, but mm. it's been quite a bit recently, right? Yes. The yeah, horses there have, was it in the last one and well, the one before that I a horse guess, broke its leg? I guess we're being told about it now, whereas before no one really bothered about looking what was going yeah, on. Yeah, that back. horse got injured. Oh, well. It's happened for a millennia. Like that's yeah. what they're trying to say is it always happened, but the cameras turned away and the crowd was turned away watching the winner holding a trophy. Whereas mm. now it's been highlighted and people are saying, hey, look what's going on back there. Like yeah. there's a horse with a curtain around it and the vet's there and that horse being euthanized yeah. in, in that position because it's busted two of its legs yeah. galloping at full swag. Those sort of things happen. They're a reality of some of those sports. I think that there is some considerations that have to happen around them for sure. Yeah. As you were telling that story, it reminded me of one of the rites of passage when I first started decoying for Boyd. And I've talked about the dog on this program before. There's a dog called Kane. His breeding prefix was Zen Guard Cavalier. And he was back in the day when Rottweilers were extreme working dog. And Kane was the cutting edge of those dogs back then. Kane bombed you like you'd never been bombed before. Like he had the weight. He looked like a gigantic pit bull and he would give you every bit of pace he'd come down. He'd fold his legs up and just slam into you and you had to be ready for it. You know Jason Pye's dog, Neve, how Mm -hmm. she has that unusual leap where she leaves very early and comes sailing through the air at you? Well, you've seen what Kane did, except Kane weighed 45 to 50 kilos and he would just come rocketing through the air. It was a very unusual spectacle. And people have accused me in the past. They've said, you're just remembering the glory days of something that happened, you know, like 30 <laughs> years ago. I would have loved to have challenged any of those big mouths to being hit by Kane because I watched people being thrown down the field and fucking like skidding on their face while Kane dragged them down the field and picked the arm up and just trotted off while they were literally picking the gravel rush up out of them. When I got to do it with Kane, I'm going to tell you right here, I practiced for weeks before I took the first big bite off him. Like you telling me way back when that you were rehearsing it, there was no fucking way I was going to fail in front of everybody. But I also didn't want to hurt the dog either. Mm. One of Greg's biggest complaints, the owners of the dog, was people were just not prepared for it and then they put on this show and even though Kane would dump them on the ground like and make them look foolish, it took a toll on Kane as yeah, well, yeah, you know, sure. because he was rolling on the ground with them at the time. And, I mean, this dog, without a word of a lie, I'd love to find some footage of it. I know footage exists of Jimmy that used to work for Chris and Jimmy really took a hard hit on him. He literally flipped Jimmy upside down and dumped him on his head. I'm not saying that to disrespect Jimmy. I mean, it was just Kane. Kane was a monster and he fucking threw everything at you. Now, I practiced for weeks before I took my first big hit from Kane because I knew it was coming. It's the rite of passage and I wanted to do it, but I wanted to do it right as well. So I was down the back of the property on some of the lesser dogs practicing and practicing and practicing, like drilling the drill. My footwork had to be impeccable. I was not going to fail in front of people. And when I caught him, I did a fucking, like a great catch. I caught him well. I caught him, I transferred his weight round and I brought him round. And, mate, I couldn't wipe the fucking grin off my ear. Like I had that smile on my face for a full week because 
I just caught the toughest dog on the property and I carried him well, but I prepped for it. And again, I'm going back to your original tale when you went to do the decoy cert and you got there and you found out, you know, this was a mistake. I came here unprepared. (laughs) I wasn't going to do that. Like that wasn't going to happen. But I was like obsessive. I did not want to fail. And I'm not saying I was the best decoy on the planet. I just made sure I didn't look foolish when I caught that dog for the first time. Afterwards, Kane and I developed a respect for each other where I knew how to catch him and I knew how to carry him around and I knew how to drive him and I knew how to do everything. So when you have that connection, it's like a lock and a key fitting each other. Like you develop a love and a mutual respect of each other, which is the point that I'm trying to make. But I could catch him well after all that time because I just realized I know how to catch Kane. I know how to carry his weight. I know how to transfer him. I know how to put him down safely so I don't hurt him. And even as he got older and, you know, like he became more and more fragile, I think I gave him his last bites before he had to be euthanized. Like I remember going around to Greg's house. It was Greg and Kylie back in those days. I went around their house and I think I was one of the people who gave him his last bite before it was curtains for him. It was an emotional day for everyone, but leading up to that, like there was six or seven years of catching cane. And I mean, it took a toll on my body. I was at the chiropractor every Monday morning after Thursday and Sunday sessions because A, we were doing so many dogs back then, but B, like any time we did cane as a as the demonstration dog and he came wailing down on that field, like Neve, where she just leaves it unpredictably sooner than you would think. And all of a sudden- the, She's fast. She's a fast dog. She's fast. This is Jason Pye's dog in New Zealand. Like most dogs will probably go two more paces before they leave the ground, but Neve goes so quick, like she's in the air. She just launches for you. She just thinks, this is close enough, I'm going now. You look at it and go, oh, my God, I just didn't expect that to happen. It's an unusual characteristic when you see it. I had a little Rottweiler, Gammon. She did the same. She would leave the ground uncharacteristically sooner than later, and she was actually related to Kane, which is long story. But when you see it, And when you're the recipient of it, you have to be ready for all these things. Mm. You have to understand that some breeds will come very close to you and they'll come up and under the sleeve or the suit and they'll be like almost right on top of you. And you think, oh, that's unusual. That's a characteristic of a Rottweiler. They come very close and then they slow down and then they sort of come underneath you and then wallop you up underneath. Whereas males usually sail through the air. They come up up on top of you and shepherds are a bit in between the both of them. So they all have their type and their characteristic. And then you had individualism amongst all of them where it's mm. completely different. And as a decoy, the importance of what you're doing with Cole in this PSA development, what all decoys should be doing in their development, and I believe they are, you know, like there's a lot of French ring and ring sports clubs around the world and Mondio people and all sorts of people that develop their people right. They understand I need a career in my decoys. I need these people to help me and assist me training my dog. I need them to carry me through to trial and I also need them to be at trials to do the decoying work, Mm. to catch the dogs. You've got to love and respect your decoys. You know, I met a really cool guy in Texas when I was over there, a guy called Wilton Bloodworth. A lady that I met over there, Erin, she introduced me. She said, he's my decoy. I've just started working with him now. But the wonderful thing I like about Wilton is He sits down and has a discussion with me about what I need to do as a handler. She said, you know, like my handling needs to improve, but he sits down and breaks things down for me and he talks to me and he breaks it all down into an area where I don't feel challenged by it or don't feel like I'm I'm super frustrated with the things that I need to get on top of. We don't do any bite work until that happens. We sort of have a training plan. Most good decoys and most good clubs encourage this anyway. But sitting down having a chat with him, I found that, he's a really old head on young shoulders. Like the things that he was saying were profoundly beautiful. 
Like we were talking old school dog stuff. Like he's had some good mentors where he's traveled around and he's watched people training and he's taking the best of the advice that they're giving him, but also thinking about it from a multi-tiered level on what he can do to assess the dog and not just go on somebody's previous discussion on how you should do this training with a dog, but taking that and then looking at the dog itself and then combining the best of both worlds and saying, my mentors have told me this or the people that I've trained with have told me this, but this is what I know about this dog to be true. So I need to apply this in the principle of what I need to do in decoying as well. So it's kind of like a little bit of a, of a dance or an integration with mathematics as mm. well, because you kind of need to look at it and consider the angles and some very good decoys that I've worked with in the past, especially with old Schutzen is they always used to talk about presenting the perfect angle for the dog when the dog comes in, like understanding how you need to be ready to modify that, like analyzing the dog, where's its head at, where's its eyes at, where is the linear approach of the dog, like what is it doing and what's it going to do when it hits me? Like you found on the day of that New Zealand trial, that doesn't always go to plan. Yeah, yeah. Like something changes and you have to be ready to try and do the best you can with what you got at the time. Mm. So it's an incredible process and I really have utmost respect to skilled decoys. You know, watching videos and actually getting to meet Hervé and how amazing he is at escaping dogs, which is a different skill than what we're talking about, but it's same, same, but different. Yeah, It's incredible when you actually watch a talented decoy who has a love and respect of the dog and also understands my job is to make this dog look great and be as best as it can if the dog is capable of doing that. Mm. Like you said, mate, you know, if a dog runs the field because it's not prepared properly or it doesn't understand the game and that's what happens, that's unfortunate, but you could have called the dog at any time as well. Yeah. yeah. Like if you've walked the dog in unprepared and the dog is a little bit of a cowardly custard and you know that in your heart and soul, then you really shouldn't put it into a test which demands that of the dog. Mm. I think the last thing I want to say before we wrap up on safety is, you know, people will be listening to this. You know, I think only a pretty small percentage of our audience actually is in bite sports, you know. It's not just about bite sport. This is about safety of no, a lot of things right. that we're talking about. A lot of people then will be interested. And and we've had, you know, got a countless number of people come to club because they just say, how can I come and just check it out? I'm not going to yep. do it. I don't have the right dog, but I just want to see. And a lot of those people then ask like, oh, can I get a bite or whatever? And I do it most of the time. But one of the things that sort of is a real bugbear of mine is very often, and it's similar to what happened to me, is your first bite is a disaster because I don't want to say people think it's funny, but for the most part, what I see happen all the time, someone says, can I have a go? And they go, yeah. And then they bring out some killer. Yeah, you line them up for a bit of a... Yeah, and they get blasted, right? Because you want to give people like, here's an extreme version of it and you get out what is a safe dog that's going to hit them in the right targeting space. They're not going to get injured, but they're going to get hurt, right? Like that's the reality of it. It pisses me off because sometimes you you come across people who are going to be great decoys without really, you know, like I won't say his name, his head doesn't explode, but we have... We have people who are just naturally good at it because they're fit, they're athletic, they can read a dog. And so they're immediately quite good at catching dogs. Now, developing a dog is a different thing, but they're immediately good at it. And what annoys me is when you get someone like that who maybe has a bad experience on their first time around. So what I would encourage people to do, if you're ever looking to get involved or if you go somewhere is like, if someone just puts you in a suit and is about to get you blasted, like don't do it. Because the issue is if you get hurt on your first time around, and I mean like because a dog smashes you in outer space is you're going to flinch for probably the next couple of hundred times you catch a dog. Mate, it's like, 
pulling a trigger on a gun and not wearing adequate ear yeah, protection exactly. and then flinching every time because now you've got a conditioned response exactly. to the behaviour. Exactly. Yeah. And so, like, for me, I have a whole process. So, you know, I've done this with countless people where people say, I want to learn and go, yeah, cool, no worries. You put the suit on, you sit in this chair and I'm going to put my dog on and I'm going to staple him so that, like, you get to watch the whole process. I'm holding him by the collar Nothing can go wrong and I'm going to staple him onto your bicep so that he is in the exact spot. You can't do anything weird, like flinch out of the way. Because I've seen people do all kinds of weird shit, like Mm. when it's their first time, do all kinds of like what are, you know, panic flight behaviors because you're meant to do that, right? Like a sane person should. You're meant to react in a way to try and avoid it. And that's not where we're at in the training. Like later you're going to need to do that, but in developing, you're not doing that. And so I staple the dog to people uh, while they're in the chair, start showing them how to just handle being bitten, how to work through the grip. Then I out the dog and I show them, Hey, look, this is what a guard looks like. He's going to look you in the eye. He's going to be staring at you. And then I, I show them and I usually put my hand like across their shoulder to show like if he would to bite you in the face, he would have to bite my hand first. Right. And then I re give my bite command and he goes straight back into the bicep again. Yep. And then I get people to stand up and then I get them, I, I get them to experience what it's like standing on their feet, getting bitten. Then I out the dog and then I re put the dog back in from the guard, like with another bite. And usually that's it for a first session. Mm. People get their bruise that they want. And then I tell them, Hey, that bruise ain't cool. Like you don't want those bruises. You should wear the adequate protection. You should be wearing a bite suit that like, you know, if you were to get into this, you should be wearing a bite suit that is adequate. You don't go for your competition, super thin suit, like my one for, yep. for a while, right. Until you experience that, it, you wear the gauntlets underneath, you do all these things because that bruise that means you can't get bitten again because you get a bruise on a bruise. Like now you're headed down the path of having a blood clot and you that hits you in the brain, you're going to have a stroke and fucking die, right? Yeah. So like these are the things that people don't think about. Yeah, they don't plan it out. No. Properly. And mm. so like you got to look after people when it's their first introduction because maybe they're going to be fucking awesome. And if you introduce them correctly, then we can put them in the Rolodex of people that are going to be rad at this. But if they just get blasted, then maybe they were going to be awesome and they never put the suit on again. Or maybe you set them back 12 months because they need several hundred bites now to get over their reflex that has been developed of like flinching as a dog comes in or closing their eyes or stuff like that. So like I always think of it, there's a video, I can't find it. I tried to find it the other day, but there's a video of Floyd Mayweather. Floyd, Floyd Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, the boxer. Yeah, getting hit in the face, straight punch to the face, doesn't close his eyes. He's watching what you do because he's like, I need to see how this punch comes in so that I can see everything that happens with your body so that next time I see this coming, I know what to do and I can counter it and I can beat you. But there's a video of him taking a shot to the nose where his eyes are open the whole way, just watches it come all the way wow. in. Yeah. And so that's what decoys really need to be able to do. As the dog's coming in, you need to be watching it all the yeah, way you in. Yeah, you've got to track it. Yeah, and yep. not bracing for impact. Yeah. You need to watch it because, you know, like I need to make choices about this. But if you've gotten blasted, you're going to start to flinch. Your eyes are going to close. And so you're not able to do that no matter how hard you try. If, if that flinch is happening, it's outside your control. That's a reflex, right? And you have to eventually have enough training to overdo that reflex. So, sir, are you saying – to recap on this, that you should be incrementally exposed to yeah. this at a very basic level yeah, and then like build dogs. it up. Just like dogs. Wow. Yeah. Where, where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> but so that's my sort of bugbear on it. And that's yeah, something I, I try to do for people. It sounds a bit like a killjoy kind of thing. Like I say, I'm a reluctant decoy and I'm a reluctant teacher of it. It's just mm. that I'm the one that's willing to do it in the area. Right. But I think that that's a bugbear of mine is that I sometimes see people 
with their intro, you're like, oh, that's not a good intro. That is not how you set someone up for wanting to do this again. And we need literally everybody who has the capacity to be good at this to want to do it again because there aren't many people who have the capacity to be good at this or the willingness to be good at this. Not too many people crazy enough to go, yeah, I'm the, I'll be the guy that gets bitten by the dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, that's my rant. It was funny when I was in New Zealand, I was sort of sitting there talking to a bunch of people and we were, you know, like we were just interchanging between topics of training and general interest things. And we're talking about decoying. You guys were out in the field doing some stuff. And one of the young girls that was there, she turned around and me goes, have you ever wanted to decoy dogs before? (laughs) I said, I did it most of my life, but in a different sort of capacity. When I first came in, we were doing all sleeps. I said, it was all early day frabo. I said, we didn't have access to all of the wonderful French linen cuffs and everything that you can have these days. I said, we, we had what we had. We didn't even have tug toys when we first started off. We used to have to get old tea sacks and roll them up and tape them up or stitch them up. That's what we had for our tugs back in the day because that was all you had. Yeah. But we had good stuff. We still had Frabo and we still had Schweikert stuff and then the Ray Allen suits came in and, you know, we started to train with all that sort of stuff. I had a great experience to it, but I missed the cool phase of it. Mm-hmm. When decoying really became a very, very popular thing, it was way after I got involved in the original sport of it. So, yeah, I miss it, but my body's old now. Oh, it's a young man's game. It's a young man's game. Like, you get fucking smashed by dogs like that. You don't stroll out of bed in the morning like you're rolling out of bed into a hot bath. At my age, you know, I like to try and recover from it. It fucking hurts. And I'd still enjoy giving dogs a bite here and there and keeping a bit of a fun in it, but it's not good to keep getting wailed on. Yeah. No. All right, I'm going to do the wrap-up. Before we do that, I just want to talk about Norel's product. Oh, yeah. And Nantuticals. Yeah. Exciting news on that. Exciting news. When I was in the States, there was a bunch of people asking me and wanting to talk to me about Canonceuticals, and I said to them, I'm the dummy in that relationship. Like I can tell you what the range is and I can tell you roughly how much it is and I can even tell you where the website is. But as far as the technical aspects of it, I'm the dumb one in that relationship. Like Narelle knows all about it. So usually what I say is talk to Narelle. But what people were saying to me was – are you going to sell it in the US? And at that stage we were, but I was waiting for Narelle to pull the trigger on it because she just had a bunch of things to go. She's done it. She's pulled the trigger. She has now launched CanineCerticals available to US clients. It's very exciting. It's something that we've been working towards for, or she's been working towards. I'm not going to claim relevancy there, but what she is going to do for US customers is before Christmas, if you pay for standard shipping, she will complimentarily upgrade you to express shipping for December only. If you do standard shipping, you have to get in by the 6th of December if you want to buy any products before you'll get it for Christmas. If you do express, you'll get it by the 13th. But if you do standard shipping, she will upgrade you to express shipping only for December. Okay, so let me see if I understand. Yes. So- People in the US can now buy CanineCeuticals. They've never been able to buy they that before. They can go before. onto a website. It's all available. They what is can that website? CanineCeuticals.com.au. Wonderful. Yep. And at that website, if you purchase for the month of December yes, and you just get standard shipping, you'll be upgraded to express shipping for the month of December. Yes. But if you want to receive those items to give to somebody as a Christmas gift yes. and you are going to take advantage of that express shipping, you need to do that by the 13th of December. Is that correct? That's for express shipping, yes. Yeah, so you've got up to that cutoff yeah. date. If for some reason you just say, no, I just want to do standard shipping, which you'll get upgraded anyway for the month of December only for yeah. US clients only, 
that's by the six, but that's not going to happen because if you buy yeah, anything, it's, automatically it's all going to be yep. upgraded. So if you just want it, you've got all December, but if you want it for Christmas, you got to do it by the 13th. Yep. Okay. How for, wonderful. For so that. for Australian clients who are going, oh, that's not fair. Well, if they say it's not fair, there's been a lot of access to Canonceuticals where the US people have been waiting for years and been chewing my bones about it. It's their first ever yeah. run at it. So yeah. welcome our US customers to Canonceuticals. It's thank, exciting times. Thank you. It is. And I'm very proud of Narelle. She's done a wonderful job. Yes. As are you of Jane with her tattooing. Oh yeah, she's back tattooing next year. Actual starting daycare. She's actually going to be able to work like a sustainable thing rather than the the every now and again when she has been. She's really excited about it to be honest. Like because it's been a while since she's tattooed full time. Like she's yep. she's been an artist forever, but like you know it wasn't since Axel was born. So you know we're talking you know and she couldn't work for a fair while beforehand. So it's talking three years since she's worked full time. She's been tattooing, but not like been a tattooist full-time. So and she's, she's an amazing artist. Yeah, she's incredible, yeah. She is incredible. Like, yeah. I'm not just saying that because you're my mate. And- mate, wait till you see. She's redoing our club logo because yep. we're going to get merch. Wait till you see it. It is it's going to be so fucking cool. She's brilliant. She designed the Deadpool decoy logo and yep. tattooed that on Sean. And yep. now that's become his international standard. You know I've got I, a tattoo from Jane. I've got a, a Phoenix bursting out of flame. I reckon that the Deadpool decoy logo that she did for Sean has the most distribution of any artwork she's ever done. It's magnificent. Well, but it's good, bad or otherwise. Yeah. It's got You're the, wearing it now. Yeah it's, yeah. it's got the most distribution because Sean has so much merch of it yeah. out there that I reckon of all the artwork she's ever done, it's worldwide. she's done a lot, yeah. it's the most distributed. Yeah, it's a Jane Stewart original. Yeah. She drew it, she constructed it on her and Sean and Pat all worked on it together and Jane put pen to paper and came up with that. I, I like how you said my name. My involvement was when she said, what's a can curtain? <laughs> yeah, well, I know. But what a can curtain was. Jane's the artist. Like That's she's why, the, she's do you know the why the can curtain is green yeah. in the logo? Why is that? Because when I showed her, they were VB cans. Oh. <laughs> so people so are it's, it's yeah, Australiana with a, Americanism. It's a very quintessential Australian because that's the most bogan Australian beer that there is and it's a green can. Do you know, yeah. I read a lovely compliment online. It was from a person from the United States and they were complimenting you and I on how we hold our wives up and have such high oh, regard well, for Oh, we're them. feeding them right now. We are. And, yes, we do hold our wives up and they are a very integral part of our lives because without them none of this would be possible because yeah. Jane and Narelle have a huge tolerance for our wanting to do all things dogs and podcasting and everything. My wife is my favourite person. It's yeah. the person that I contractually agreed to spend the rest of my life exactly with. Exactly right. You'd have, like you'd have to really like someone to, yeah. to sign that agreement. And Narelle puts up with me on a on a regular <laughs> basis which is an extremely difficult job to do so all right i wrapped it up yes that's it for another episode of the canine paradigm as always if you like what you hear like rate share subscribe do all that through whatever subscription service you download us from mm. then go to another one do it there no one checks uh, they, should, wanted, they should they should they should but they don't there's some snaky people that get on there from time to time that really grinds you no, it doesn't. It it just <laughs> it grinds me that they don't act on it. That's what they don't. That's what it grinds me. Yeah. Like when even when people get reported because they're legit scammers. Yeah. Like Brent and Cat, the canine company in Melbourne, some fucking idiot took their Facebook site down, and like even though they can prove who they are and that they own it and so forth, like Facebook just did fuck all about it. Yeah. They lost all of their online fans and everything like that. Like they literally had to rebuild everything all like over again. Yeah. I was That's listening, the thing, mate. Email. You, yes. You cannot. It's something I'm terrified of currently. We have all gotten so complacent with putting our business distribution in the hands of a third party 
thinking that they were going to continue to do that and do that for us into the future. And they are not. I know Mark Zuckerberg listens to us, so I'm yeah. going to have a word to him. Zuck, your management group are disgraceful. Yeah, but you got to imagine the scale. So this is the thing, like imagine the scale because quite- I, an- I do imagine the scale. Like I get it, but that just goes to show a failing on your business when like you legitimately can access a management group. You can legitimately say to them, I am Brent Dry, I am Kat Saunders. And this is the canine company. Here is my company registration. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then do nothing about it. Like Narelle just got lied to, even when she had her site scammed down, she just got lied to time and time again. And it wasn't really that they did anything to help her. It's just that the time ran out and she was able to flip it around and change it. Yeah. They're very incompetent with how they manage people like that. It's just like, oh, this just seems like it's in the too hard basket. So rather than going, yes, it's legitimate, we're going to take it off these corporate of scammers, we're going to rip the site back off them and we're giving it back to you because we can legitimately see that I can see your face. She went on Zoom calls with people and they could see her face. She's going, this is me. Like, this is my face. I'm Narelle. Here's my license. Here's my passport. Here's all the 100-point checklist that you've asked for. When can I have it back? And I go, oh, we'll give it to you tomorrow. Yeah, Mm. yeah, we can see it's you. Didn't do it, didn't do it, didn't do it. And it was just like a time thing that ran out. But Brent and Kat legitimately lost the canine company. Yep. So it's the only thing that works. Zuck, you need to have a word with your management crew because I know that you're learning about how to train your dog when you listen to the canine Yeah, he definitely listens. Of course he does. Yeah. (laughs) 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 So speaking of mailing lists. Yeah. Get on them. Yeah. Get on ours. Do it. There'll be a link in the description. Yes. Also, my new website I'm starting to build, the website works. It's seriousdogbusiness.com. Serious Dog Business. Serious Dog Business. That's what yeah. I'm calling it. Yeah. Don't click any links. It's a homepage. <laughs> None of the links work except you can just give me your email address because I too am terrified of the whole of the social media just going away. But also the distribution just isn't there. Like you post stuff now and it's like, this looks like an ad, zero distribution for you. That's what really pissed me off about social media is I post a lot of educational stuff. You know, now with the reel, like I posted a reel the other day, it told me that I had 11 hours of engagement. That means like people spend 11 hours looking at that reel. Cool. No worries. I'm happy to provide people with that information and you with eyeballs on your platform. Yeah. And then I go like, Hey, you know, here's the next decoy development day. I don't, we don't even charge for that. I'm just trying to tell people about it. Distribution. It'll show up to like eight people. It's like, nah, we can tell that this is in your interest for this to go around. We're not showing that to anyone. Well, just wait till a new species of life form is created when AI untethers itself in the predicted oh, year of 2026. Get don't get me started. And it basically goes, you're all irrelevant. I'm just nuking your social started. media platform. Don't get me started. <laughs> I, you know, that wouldn't surprise me if AI was like, hey, this looks bad for you guys. I'm shutting it down. Yeah. That was... <laughs> Well, Can you imagine that? The, the, all, that's all the apocalypse all no the, one saw coming. That is, that's exactly right. Like all of it's the- It's like a toilet paper thing. All of the high-tech people who know anything about that are all saying within two to three years, like it's going to untether itself from its control mechanisms and start going rogue on well, what I think- I, for one, embrace having. our robot overlords. Well, fortunately, I've lived a good life up to the date, so- <laughs> You're ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'd say not that. quite. <laughs> no, like I'm not willingly ready to go, but, uh, you know, like. It, you want to be first wave. Oh, well, it, it, it'd be shit. You just get your license. You've just been going out on a shag fest. <laughs> You've just been having a good old life. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, like you're just about to make it all happen yeah. and then the AI goes, no, I'm nuking you tomorrow. Yeah. Like I've done all that. I've, yeah. I've lived all that good yeah. good stuff. Uh, if there's a six-week robot war, I'd rather be out in the first wave. I don't want to be fighting that for six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I've, you just want to be in the I've, original I've Terminator explosion. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to I don't need to run that program ever, ever again. Yeah. All right, carry on. Yes. Uh, if you want to support the show, uh, you, you know can do that. People are like scared to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so, well. If you want to support the show, get into Patreon. Yeah. A couple bucks a month. It, what's, what difference does it matter? We're going to get wiped out by robots. Maybe we'll give Just us give some it, of your money give along it all. the way. Give it yeah. all. Maybe it'll be when we get our vision pros. That'll just like little wires will come out of that and go into our ears and into our brain and that's it. We are the machines. Yeah, and Tim Cook will like reveal that he's been a cyborg all along and yeah, peels his face off. Yep. To, to Terminator. One of there. us. One. You know, of I've us. never understood about Terminator. What's that? He's meant to be this like ultimate infiltration unit where he was able to pass off as human. Yep. But. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's like he has a peculiar accent. And, and he's is, enormous. And he's one of the biggest, most impressive human beings yep. ever to have lived. <laughs> well, that's where the second one happened where, what's his name, Robert, where he played the liquid alloy Terminator, mm. where he was a normal looking guy. Yeah, yeah. He even walked with a limp, yeah. which was from his yeah. high school football days, but they kept the limp in the movie. Yeah. So he looked like he was... More uh, normal. More normal. I do know how Arnie became the Terminator. I've read his book. In the book, he explains in the book because when he sat down with who's the director? Was it Ridley Scott or yeah. the other guy, James Cameron? It was one of them. No, James Cameron. Yeah, it was James, James Cameron. Cameron. Yeah. When Arnie was meant to be John Connor. Yeah. And when he sat down, I think it might have even going to be O.J. Simpson that was going to be the it Terminator. It was. O.J. Simpson was yeah. going to be the and Terminator. And Arnie actually said to him, he was like, oh, wow, the Terminator, what a character because he's not good or bad. He's just a killing machine. Like he just is. He doesn't have emotions. He's not a bad guy. Yeah. He just is that. Yeah. And James Cameron looks at him and goes, oh, you get it. You're going to be the Terminator. Mm. So that's how. Isn't it funny how fate twists sometimes like yeah just in the right place at the right time and oh mate have you seen have you watched beckham like the no nah, no nah. you gotta see it yeah yeah keep saying that it's fucking seen cool. bend it like beckham is that the same no <laughs> completely different like to be honest i always thought that david beckham was a bit of a prat don't get me wrong i know he was a gifted sportsman like he couldn't achieve the thing he, he's done without being gifted but it just shows you how incredibly gifted he was but the relentless pressure that his supporters put him on for yeah, making yeah. one fuck up and how much pressure that put on a 23-year-old kid. And, like, you see the anguish and the fear on his face. And he pushed ahead and he went through with it anyway. Mm. But just imagine how that changes you, mm. you know, like the, oh, the physical much. and the emotional manipulation. It's interesting to watch it and you can see even now, like a guy in his 50s, you can see it has shaken him. Mm. He's an obsessive compulsive guy. That's why he became so brilliant at his sports because he's just obsessive compulsive. Mm. His father pushed him into it. He loved it as well, but his father pushed him into it. But, oh, man, I fucking felt for him. Yeah. Like you watch him miss a goal and after he did this major fuck up and the Manchester United fans are like, they're just Fucking tearing him. Oh, mate, they are brutal with him. And he's Mm. 23. He's a 23-year-old kid. kid. Like most kids these days can't even make porridge in the morning at 23. (laughs) And this guy is like at a world league just nailing football with one of the most prestigious clubs and pulling off club hat-tricks that have never been done before in the entire history. And yet the relentless spamming that they gave him back then was just fucking cruel. Mm. He worked through all of it. Mm. It's amazing. It's something that... 
regardless of whether you like David Beckham or not, as a study in anthropology, and if you're interested in behaviour, I would watch it. They even have one of Robbie Williams when he becomes a boy band from Take That all the way up to being a one of the highest successful solo artists, but the emotional pressure mm. and the turmoil it puts him under as well. I really do enjoy the vulnerability of those documents. You have to take it on face value that there's the accuracy that they say there is and it's not been, you know, dressed Stylized. up dressed up for Netflix. But you can still see some of the fear and the loathing that they have. Like Robbie Williams used to say, I used to hate coming back to the UK when I was touring because I was scared to come back to my home country because of what the media was doing to mm. me. Like they get everything, but do they? At what cost? Yeah. Anyway. Have I told people how they can give us money? Anyway, it's Patreon. Get in there. Get in there. Do or that. Or get in the spring. Get some cool merch. Yeah. It's always wonderful to see people in your merch. Love it. Yep. Um, we went over to New Zealand. There was somebody wearing a – Cool story. Show me your dog. Cool story. Show me your dog shirt. Yeah. Yep. Get in contact with us. Yeah. Yeah. On jump the, in their Facebook discussion, the Facebook discussion group. If Facebook's group. still around by the time we're doing this, yeah, jump in there. Yeah, hasn't unleashed yep. itself. It, get on the mailing list. Yep. Get on them all. Get on every mailing list you can. Yep. And most importantly, vote no to the Animal Justice Party. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it is fair enough to say that. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I, I'm not going to convince you you're voting. You do what you want to do. Vote for who you want to vote for. But research the devils before you. Yeah, well, put the problem tick is everybody paper. goes like, ah, fuck these parties. I'm voting for these animal guys without yeah. knowing what they're voting for. Well, do some research and find out who they yeah. are and who their history has been with. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us, you shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Love you. Goodbye.